Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is sponsored by R.W. Knutson Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice, a welcome addition to anyone's sleep routine. Pace case, if you know me... And you do. Mm-hmm. You know that I'm yep. working all hours of the day, all hours of the night. Mm-hmm. So the sleep that I do get has to be very good sleep. And I'm always looking for ways to up my sleep routine. Sometimes I'll read a book to go to sleep. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll... I a bachelor. Uh, that book keeps me very awake. It's very engaging. That never puts me to sleep. Mm. I will sometimes just put down my cell phone after a long day of looking at a screen. It's nice to get some time away from the screen. I also will incorporate some R.W. Knutson Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice. It truly makes you go to sleep a little easier. It's the thing you need to help you drift off into the dreamland. Mm. As more and more people are looking to prioritize sleep, organic Just Tart Cherry is having a moment thanks to Tart Cherry's potential sleep-related benefits and potential to aid in muscle recovery when you get those gains-like clues. We're seeing this in the viral Sleepy Girl mocktail trend on social media. R.W. Knutson has a whole lineup of natural juices with zero added sugar, so you can feel good about adding them to your wellness routine. It's all about celebrating those daily wins. Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice is made from tart cherries, which may help you get a better night's sleep because they have natural melatonin. R.W. Knudsen crushes only 100% real ingredients, so you can crush everything you do. Pick up a bottle at your local grocery store today. It's the Game of Roses. Welcome to the Game of Roses. Thank you for joining us today. Pace case and myself are away from our gore offices on official pit business. We cannot divulge what that pit business is. It is very secretive at this point, but rest assured it's very interesting. And we hope to be able to share that with you at some point in the future. But as for today's episode, we are going to be replaying our top 10 takeaways from the Hyper Binge. That was something that Pace Case and myself did at this point over a year ago in order to write our book, How to Win the Bachelor, in order to get all the data for it. So we hope you enjoy this reprisal of the top 10 takeaways from our Hyper Binge. Can we travel close to the speed of light? And what's magic about the speed of light? Can't we travel faster than that? It turns out that there is something very strange about the speed of light. 
something that provides the key to our understanding of time and space. Welcome to Game of Roses. This is Pace Case. This is Bachelor Clues. Congratulations, Pace Case. We did it. We did it. We finished the hyperbench, and this is our celebration this episode, the hyperbench. We are celebrating with a little bit of our favorite intoxicant. And I don't know how many episodes we watched. I don't know what the total runtime was on all of this, but I can tell you it was season one, episode one, to season 24, episode 12. We had to skip season nine because we couldn't find it. We watched it all in about three months. I challenge anyone out there listening to this to try and do that yourselves. It will (laughs) alter you. Let me just say that. And some of those alterations are for the better. Some might be worse. We'll have to see. You tell us, Pitt, if we are worse or better. But today, what we're going to do is celebrate the end of this journey by looking back on the top 10 things we learned, the top 10 things we took away from this experience. We are going to discuss them. We are going to go through them. They are ranked in what we believe is order of importance And we hope that you guys enjoy it. These are the fruits of our labor. Some of the fruits. Many other fruits of this labor will be coming. There are a lot of fruits. This is a taste of the fruits. (laughs) Just trying to give a little context. I had two edibles. Clues is smoking a Pax. And we'll see what happens. So bear with us. But this is, I think, going to be pretty fun. Even as we were just putting together this top 10 list, I was like, fuck, that's crazy. And we were having to go back and look through some of our data to see which season these things actually happened in. And it is, it's bringing me back into the hype binge. I'm immediately <laughs> transported right back to my chair in the moments we were watching these events. And as we learned in the interview with Shoya this week, the hyper binge is like your womb, your safe place, and you are sad to have left it. She didn't say those exact words. <laughs> Now, we knew going into this that we were going to be looking into the dark seasons. That was obviously part of the hyper binge. And we were going to see racism, misogyny, homophobia, of course. And indeed, we did see those things. That was no surprise, though. The things we are going to discuss now, the things that are in this top 10 list, are things we didn't expect, things we had no fucking idea even happened in some cases, things that have given us such a broader understanding of the game as a whole now that we know them. We feel these are kind of the most valuable things we have taken from it, the things that we think everyone who truly is a student of the game should know moving forward. Because As I said, not only did I not know these things, in some cases, they changed my mind about things I thought I knew. Wow. It also changed the way I looked at the show. I mean, should we just get into it? Should we just get into the 10? Yes. (laughs) Coming in at number 10 was the evolution of limo exits. We now know there are eight types of limo exits in our beloved game. You got your grandy, your standy, your kringle, your sidecar, your it takes two, your aloha, your tot, and your blandy. I always forget that one. 
we had no idea when these came into the game. And we've just become so used to what the game is like now, especially for somebody who just started watching it in the last four to five seasons. You expect all of these things. You expect that someone's going to come in in a full body costume of a fucking animal or something. You expect that somebody's going to ride in in a sports car or an ice cream truck. You expect these things. You're certainly not expecting everyone to come up with a blandy handshake and just say, hello, this is my name. Bye. Which is what we saw of all the limo exits in season one. But it continued pretty late in the game. The first non-Blandy in history was the first standee, first stand-up. It was performed by a player named Tina. We do not know her last name. If anybody can give us this information, please reach out to us. She was a player in season three, Andrew Firestone. And she's not to be confused with another player from that season, Tina Panis, a.k.a. Tina Fabulous. but. Tina, unknown last name, came up to Andrew Firestone and said, you have to pick me tonight because I have a lot of clothing I can't return. A fun little joke. It barely even translates as a standee. You're like, is it a prepared line? And upon examination, it is. And marked a huge turning point. And just to define the standee for you, this is a limo exit where someone comes out of the limo and has a prepared performance. That can be a line. It can be a pun. It can be a dance. It can be singing a song. Sometimes it involves props. But this is the first time we see it. Someone comes out of the limo and says a joke. Now, the joke lands flat in this case. Andrew Firestone is so rich, he doesn't understand the concept (laughs) of returning clothing. So the joke does not work. But nonetheless, it was an attempt she rehearsed this. She wrote this. Of course, that is a standee. And this, again, is the first time in the history of the entire game we see someone exit a limo and not just walk up to him, literally shake his hand and say, nice to meet you and walk in the mansion. Season three. And that was just that, a standee. One line. How far do we have to go before we get Alex Dillon in a full-body sloth costume. Or modern standee, Carly Waddell, performing that karaoke song dressed in a full sort of princess outfit, carrying a karaoke machine, prop work. We're just going to go through some of the first non-Blandy limo exits now. It wasn't until season 10, Andrew Baldwin's season, that Tina Wu did the first Kringle. A Kringle is when a player gives a gift to the lead. It's named after Santa Claus or Chris Kringle, who features <laughs> prominently in our beloved game. Tina Wu gave him a fortune cookie that had a fortune in it that said, your dreams will become reality. This was the first gift given. A fucking fortune. The symbolism of that. Incredible to me. Tina Wu actually made it pretty far. She made it to sixth place that season. Was it the power of the Kringle? Probably. We saw another limo exit. Enter the arena, season 13, Jason Mesny. We had the last limo exit, the Omega limo, emerged from it, a woman named Shannon Bear. She was a dental hygienist, and she performed the first taut in history. She came out of the limo wearing these monster teeth, fake teeth in her mouth, 
took a big smile at Jason Mesny and took him out. And it was a, you know, taught related to her career of being a dental hygienist. But nevertheless, and it was subtle, you know, it was only covering her teeth. She removed it immediately. But this was our first taught we ever saw in the history of our beloved game. And tots, of course, at this point, have a rich and diverse family of several that we've seen. <laughs> Dolphin costume sloths. All manner of wedding dresses. Claire Crawley in a pregnant stomach. Queen Bachelorette. Yo-yo. She came out in a unicorn head. All of that starts here. Yeah, we've we've seen men, a couple men emerge in full body armor, including Chase and Nick this season. And again, this didn't come until season 13, Shannon Blair breaking ground with what seems like in that moment insignificant. She wears a pair of false teeth. How could she ever know? The tots that would come after that. They knew it was something special. They gave her the last limo exit. Well, imagine you've been doing this show. 13 seasons. You've never seen anything like this. 13 seasons it took to get to that point. That was something that blew my mind. It seemed like these types of limo exits have probably been around since the first couple of seasons to me. 13 seasons before somebody throws in a pair of false teeth? Hard to believe. Well, believe it, because it happened and we saw it in the hyper binge. And then it wasn't until season... 16, Ben Flanick as The Bachelor, that a young Lindsay Cox decided experimentally to forego riding in the back of the limo in favor of riding into the mansion on a horse. This is the first grand entrance in the history of the game. Limo exits are now complete once this happens, and she does it on a horse. The horse, as we know, is an integral part of our beloved game. There's an animal husbandry horse date on almost every season. (laughs) And here she rides in on one, the animal totem of the game itself is the first grandy. You think the horse is the animal totem of the show? Name an animal that's had more screen time. Mm. I dare you. Dogs. Not even close. Yeah, that dog Molly. (laughs) Molly was on the Women Tell All. Horses have been on the Women Tell All. You're probably right that horses are the animal that appears the most. We've seen raccoons, we've seen dogs, we've seen cows. But the image of people on a one-on-one date going on a horse has been in every season, probably. And here we have this first grand entrance. And once that's complete, Really, it marks the finalizing of the modern game. By that point, season 16, you had first impression roses, you had group date roses, one-on-one roses, two-on-one dates, all of the limo exits, night one curveballs, you've got your tings, we've got women tell all, the episodes (laughs) are two hours at that point. You have a live women tell all and live after the final rose. got the fimp rose. But to me, this moment was among the most important in the history of the game because this is the game now. When you see her coming on that horse, it's like, that's it. That's basically what you have now. 
Not a lot has changed, other than obviously what's going on in the pandemic. Season 13 marks the formal structure of the game. We saw Jason Mesnick's season is the first of what we consider to be the modern era, where you have most of the limo exits. You have a bachelor who has played on the show before, which was a huge component. Before that point, the only bachelor who had been on the show before was Bob Guinea in season four at the beginning of the experimental era. They didn't repeat it until Jason Mesnick. And from that point until until Matt James, we have only bachelors who come from Bachelorette or Brad Womack, who had been the bachelor before. And then once you get to 16 and you see the Grandy, it's every piece is in place now. And we only were able to see any of that because of the hyper binge when you watched it all. I mean, really, this is kind of what we were able to just do to lay all of that out. And so here's the history of the limo exit and roughly how that translates to the history of the game itself. I feel like this is one of the gifts of the hyper binge. That's the hidden gift in the limo exit evolution is really we're talking about the evolution of the whole game to its formal structure that exists now. And so it's somewhere between season 13 and then season 16 has like kind of the cherry on top with the grand limo exit and we also saw the first sidecar that season as well so we had finally all eight limo exits at that point speaking of the formalization of the modern game something happened in the women tell all in season 13 which put into motion events that would transform the game Number nine on our list of top 10 things we took away from the hyper binge is something that changed the game in a way I had not anticipated. No one actually had anticipated at that point. It's arguable that without this number nine, nothing exists today. Ooh. Certainly not in the expanded bachelor universe that we now know and love there are children that would not exist if not for number nine it was something i didn't know it was something i didn't expect but on season 13 again that magical season where so much took place with jason mesnick where so much took place in the formation of two-hour episodes of all the different group date One-on-one, two-on-one date roses. Bachelors from within the franchise. That year on The Women Tell All, we saw the origin of Bachelor Pad and Bachelor in Paradise. On all of these Women Tell Alls, this one, of course, takes place live in the studio audience. It was one of the first times that happened as well. They're getting that down. They're getting all their fans and jewel tones and making them hold up signs and shit in the audience. That's starting to happen. They always have these reels. From blooper reels to the drama reel to the hot bachelor reel, DLH will always in the opening of these things throw to some reel that is germane to the season or the bachelor world as a whole. Sometimes it's a retrospective on happy couples that have come from the franchise. This season, for the first time, they have a reel that depicts players from the prior two seasons at what they call a bachelor reunion. They have them in New York. Las Vegas, Los Angeles. This is an event where these players get together, have drinks and co-mingle from different seasons now. This is the players from Bachelorette and Bachelor are meeting each other for the first time at bars, at resorts, in casinos in Las Vegas, and there are camera crews shooting it, and we see clips of it in the Women Tell All. It's almost like 
a proof of concept for what would become Bachelor Pad, what would become <laughs> Bachelor in Paradise. We saw players from pretty far back in some of these reels, and we've even seen players who were previous crowns. I know we've seen Ali Fadatowski in some of these more modern reunion clip reels. Those reunions were what started it all. And at least in this time, the producers were just doing them. It seemed like to have a little reel, to have a three-minute package during the Women Tell All. They didn't use that footage, to my knowledge, for anything else. Maybe they were thinking about putting out DVDs or something. I don't know. It's mostly people just like partying. The sound quality is not good. It's nothing near what we see in Bachelor Pad or Bachelor in Paradise. But the concept is there. People wanted this. They would have little updates and ITMs with some of the random couples who had hooked up in the postseason. And in terms of how it affects play structure and being a player in the game, it started the never-ending Bachelor dating pool that you can come into, swim around in until you find somebody and leave. And it's always being restocked with new players. You age out of it, like Chris Bukowski, and then somebody (laughs) replaces you. He'll never age out of it. In this time, there was no social media. These people weren't sliding into each other's DMs. The only way they were able to meet up through their Bachelor world was if the producers called you for one of these reunions. Or Twitter. Or Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) I guess was Twitter starting then? I don't know. I'm just thinking back to uh, it was definitely in there for Juan Pablo's era. But I just have to imagine in the very beginning of this, these players would have met up otherwise. So it was kind of like the show itself created this weird dating pool that still lives on to this day. Well, the show is also setting up these event spaces and presumably, you know, it's an open bar or whatever. There's some sort of fun luxuries at these Yeah, without these, you don't have Bachelor Pad. And God, I can't wait to go back through Bachelor Pad because that I do not remember at all. And there's definitely some crazy shit in there. I've never even seen it. That uh, Erica Rose being egged in that game. I have seen that clip on YouTube, but I've never seen Bachelor Pad. (laughs) The Bachelor reunions were, to me, a special weird thing that I didn't know about at all. Literally had no idea that this happened. And there it is. Right before my very fucking eyes, the producers are creating this thing where some of these players only date now if a camera's on them while they're doing it. And this is where that first started happening, that even when you're not on the show, you can still date these people in the context of this weird reality TV show world with cameras on you. So you're still portraying some something to the camera, whether we see that footage or not, whether it becomes a TV show or not. If you're on a date with somebody and there are four cameras shining in your face, you're going to be doing whatever (laughs) you do for the cameras. Yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, I literally saw that Chase and Nick had already started liking some of the Instagram photos of women on Matt James this season. Uh, Sarah Trot, I saw that. And I was like, this is where that comes from, you know? Totally. <laughs> that is what this has become. But yeah, doing that work post-game, you know, I don't think we saw any major relationships out of this. I remember there was a couple who maybe met on Bachelor in Paradise who were together. But you don't you don't really get the first iconic paradise couples for a long time. It really, to me, was like watching, just as a sports metaphor, the early days of the UFC, before it was super huge, before Dana White and the Fertitta brothers bought it and turned it into this billion-dollar company. It was this, like, fly-by-night... Relatable reference. (laughs) It is to me. It was 
The early version of it was like only true hardcore fans were watching it. And the people who were playing the fighters in it weren't like making a lot of money. It was just kind of keeping them afloat. Now you've got guys making literally Conor McGregor made like a hundred million dollars a couple of years ago. So it has elevated to that. And I saw in these people at these bachelor reunions, those early UFC fighters who were just getting the shit kicked out of them for peanuts, but they're building something, an empire that will allow future players to make millions. And that's exactly what it does. Jane and Tanner make millions. They win millions. The millions get taken away. (laughs) Speaking of things that have been taken away... A huge, huge takeaway for me from this. And look, I was expecting this. I was expecting there to be some more misogyny than we see even in our modern current era. I was expecting that. But this next item, revelation number eight, it really smacks you in the face. Oh, God. This is what we are calling the boob zone. The first five seasons, they all have these very open conversations about boobs from the leads, from the players, from Dark Lord Harrison. We have the first Bachelor, Alex Michelle. He's slinging mud on boobs. He has a conversation with Amanda, who ends up being his ring winner, about her fake boobs. There is so much focus on fake boobs in the early seasons. We have ITMs of women describing other people and how they paid for their assets. We see all these zooms and these long, drawn-out reels of tits and asses. And it is unbelievable. And it really makes you realize that we just live in a completely different era where this shit just is not acceptable. Or people would watch it and be like, what the fuck are you doing? They have all, all of the drama reels at the Women Tell All. You always have this, what they call a drama reel now, but they DLH would introduce it as either the claws come out or he would say the cat fights begin. When you put 30 women in a house, there's going to be cat fights. One of the women tells, Dark Lord Harrison asks a woman about her boob job while she's in the hot seat. Was at this moment that Bachelor Clues and Pace Case found themselves overwhelmed with a sense of nostalgia that compelled them to spend the next 37 minutes poring over the thousands of pages of notes they had compiled during the Hyperbinge in service of finding every reference of boobs in the game's history. The following are excerpts from that search. Andrew takes her to get a massage. Kirsten is self-conscious about her chest because she doesn't have fake boobs and she feels that's all guys want. (laughs) These are various boob notes in Andrew Firestone's season. Boob montage, dark season moment. One-on-one time, Andrew takes her to get a massage. Kirsten is self-conscious about her chest because she doesn't have fake boobs and she feels that's all guys want. Andrew excuses himself for a second. The girls talk to each other about their boobs. Dark season moment, season six. Boob reel. Krista, there's so much silicone around here. If I were allergic, I'd be dead. All of my search results in my uh, (laughs) drive for boob are my bachelor notes. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Season eight, Krista's in the first hot seat. They play a montage of her talking behind people's backs. She talks shit on almost everyone. She calls out all the fake boobs. In that same season, season six, in The Women Tell All, a woman named Cynthia suggests that Krista should get a boob job. She might want to think about a little silicone. Oh, group date three on an episode of season seven, Charlie O'Connell. Danushka doesn't feel like she fits in because she doesn't have fake boobs while they play volleyball. Danushka was funny. Volleyball group date, Danushka says, if I wanted big boobs, I would have bought them like the other girls. Season one of The Boob Zone, Alex Michelle and his eventual ring winner, Amanda, are on a one-on-one date. They go on a tour bus or on some blankets. And Alex says, so I have some things I want to get to the bottom of. I want to know about your boobs. And she says, I was obsessed with Dolly Parton. Alex Michelle says, normally I'm against it. I want things to be natural all the time. In his ITM. Season four, in the intros, we get a ITM from Mike Fleiss. He says, we take all kinds of things into consideration. There's psychological exams, there are blood tests, and most importantly, they have to look good in the hot tub. And then shows a bunch of shots of asses and titties. Which, side note, this isn't boob zone, but in season <laughs> two, three, four, I think five... They had producers at the beginning of the season, like in season two, they did a whole casting special as the first episode of the season that showed producers interviewing players and a little bit of the process, including giving blood. There's a shot of a woman with a needle hanging out of her arm, giving blood as she's getting tested to come on the show. That was a piece of the actual document. But yes, the boob zone, as we just went through a stroll down memory lane of all of our notes with boobs in it, was... A little shocking. Even though we were expecting the misogyny, it was still the volume of it. I mean, literally those first five or six seasons, there's open dialogue about boobs in every one of those seasons multiple times. It was a very big cultural shock because I remember I watched this live, started at season one when I was 12. And so I'm watching this shit when I'm in my my preteens. And it's like, oh, that was just accepted as normal. And that's just how we talked about women and their bodies and stuff. So there has been progress societally, which warmed my heart. Speaking of progress, our next item in this top 10 list, number seven, is the progress of Tina Fabulous to become the first player (laughs) in the game's history to understand that there's a fourth audience and to play directly to it. This was season three. Up until this point, in season one and two, you had seen some people maybe trying to censor what they would say to mute themselves a little bit around the cameras, to try and be on their best behavior, to try and convey a version of themselves that maybe was not letting too much out, not really getting into who you are. Tina Fabulous was the first person to do the exact opposite, to blow up who she was into a little bit of a larger-than-life character and really turn herself into this character. Her real name was Tina Panis. She comes into the show. She's always wearing sunglasses and big hats. She's walking around like a movie star. Dresses and heels. Even when they're at the beach or the pool. And she starts overusing the phrase fabulous to describe everything that she likes. (laughs) (laughs) The foods they're eating, the room she's in, everything is fabulous to her. 
and she gets the nickname Tina Fabulous. This is the first time we've seen something like this in the history. She's pulling off crazy moves in the game where she's essentially getting then-bachelor Andrew Firestone to give her his watch, which she wears as a trophy in front of the other players. She's doing these high-level plays within the game as well as conveying a character. She really becomes a celebrity Mm -hmm. in her own right, despite ultimately not making Final Two. Tina Fabulous walked so Corinne Olympias could run. That's really like the first iteration of making yourself into a character. She was one of my favorite players that we watched going back. I had, you know, some standouts. I had her, Courtney Robertson, Demi, Crystal, Caitlin, Leslie Murphy, Charlene, Corinne, a lot of excellent characters, but you don't have any of them without Tina Fabulous. And she got screen time because of it. There was, when we were just doing the boob zone, I was looking through my dark season moments and there was, before we had these um, long intro packages at the beginning of every episode, we had like sort of the first iteration of that, which was short little interviews with people, the women in their hotel rooms while they're getting ready, sometimes without their clothes on, again, boob zone. One of these interviews with Tina Fabulous, she goes, I think I'm thin. Do you think I'm thin? It was a very... Very dark season moment, harking back to, uh, <laughs> I remembered Victoria Fuller being like, I shouldn't have eaten that sandwich before they do their Cosmo bikini shoot. And I was like, ugh, the ideas about women that are fucking pumped out through this are not good as far as like, you need to be 2% body fat. I felt the exact same fucking way. And it's not just that Tina Fabulous said that or that Victoria Fuller said that. It's that the producers edit it into the show. Mm-hmm. It's an active choice. But despite the fact that Tina Fabulous obviously fell prey to some of those things in the earlier seasons, and obviously there's a lot of pressure put on her even going on the reality show, it felt to me like she was really the first player to understand that the people watching this at home are what matter. However yeah. far I get with The Bachelor or these other players, the producers don't, that's kind of bullshit. She was an all-in fourth audience player very rare to see, especially in season three, she had already cracked that code. I think a lot of what the game is today is owed to her. And I think not many people understand that. You also don't need to do like really extravagant gameplay to get ahead in those days because she had no competition. Like when she makes him give her the watch, she's going all the way. I mean, she makes it to fantasy suites. Can you imagine something like that today? I also think because the game is the way it is, you now see leads all the time when a player's like, oh, let's go up to your room and make out. And he's like, no, the other women will not like that. I think the leads now understand that they can get trapped by some of these plays. I don't think you could see somebody mm-hmm. do that. Give me your watch play now. I immediately think of Rachel Lindsay's season when Brian Abasolo got the pretty woman date and he, they got matching watches and he would wear his and it would make all the guys pissed. That's as close as you can get now is a fucking matching watch. <laughs> You're not wearing the actual one. It's too detrimental. Yeah. But Tina Fabulous was just, we put her at number seven because she really is one of the top 10 most impressive things I had no idea about. I literally did not know who she was before this. And then you watch it and you're like, oh my God, that's where that piece of the game came from. That's where the colorful narrator, all of that shit, that play style came from her. She started it all. Who knows how old Demi is? 
five, six years old when she's at home watching Tina Fabulous. And then she grows up and watches the long, rich legacy that came after (laughs) Tina Fabulous to become Demi. It's exactly true. Demi is the evolution of that. Exactly. Taking over the show, making it your own show. It was the Tina Fabulous show. I think that phrase was even used during the game. Just as Demi took over Bachelor in Paradise and made it her entire season. Unbelievable. Just as we were doing our research, there were a million more articles about Tina Fabulous than there were about any other player on that season, including the ring winner and the runner-up. She walked out of it with the most celebrity. She got the biggest fourth audience engagement, even before there really was a fourth audience. Like There wasn't Instagram and shit like that back then. Twitter, (laughs) I don't even think existed. Blogs. This would have been 2004, five. Speaking of things not existing back then, (laughs) our next item, number six on our hyper binge top moments revelations, is the rise of the love levels. In the earlier seasons, we had maybe one or two players, Max, saying love level three or four, I'm falling in love with you, I'm in love with you at the very end of their season. And we've now gone from that to multiple people saying a variety of love levels every season in a relatively short period of time. And that starts around season 13 or 14. It just shows you how much this game has escalated in that time period. I mean, we basically didn't see love level fours unless it was in the proposal at the beginning. And now... We're seeing them sometimes as early as hometowns. Or if you're Luke P, we're seeing it on the group date on a public performance on stage. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. He did it. Oh, God. (laughs) The rise of the love levels is kind of another huge important component of the game. Once that's locked in, the player now has a trajectory, a path. This is kind of how you navigate through the game is by going level level one to two to three to four. You try to time it correctly so that it hits that peak right at the very end. And you didn't see it really until 13, 14. What we call the classic era is one through three. The experimental era is four through 12. That's where things like first impression roses were getting invented. That's the first time you see a one-on-one rose, a two-on-one date. It's the first time you see it in that era. They were doing all kinds of weird stuff. Season six, we had two bachelors. We had Byron Velvic and Jay Overby were the two bachelors and the women had to choose between them. And also they, Byron ended up living in the house with them. Very experimental. Eventually, we're going to be doing uh, podcasts on each of these periods and getting into really what happened in them and what you need to take away from them. But for now, I just wanted to kind of bring it up to say that so much changed in season 13. It was the first season right after the experimentation ended. They had snapped a lot of things into place in season 12. And then 13, you get the last pieces of it. You get all episodes are two hours, all the limo exits, et cetera, et cetera. And it's where you get this piece of play style as well. Not just the structure of the game has changed and solidified, but now the way players play it has also solidified in season 13, 14, where you get the the beauty of the four love levels. And along with those love levels, we also get way more tears and kisses. I've been counting all of those as we go through every episode and 
all of those numbers have drastically gone up along with the love levels. And a lot of that has to do with it being a two-hour program now. You're getting double the media, which also means, by the way, the producers have to figure out how to fill that with meaningful stuff. And I think a lot of these things, potentially even the love levels, were inadvertently created by producers. When somebody comes in and says, well, I think I'm going to tell them I love them, maybe they're like, well, maybe you slow that down a little bit. Tell them you're falling in love with them. That way, it, you're not committed to it one way or another. You're just telling them you're on the path. I feel like producers did make these things to some degree out of necessity to fill time. They increased the amount of episodes as well. So that's an important thing to understand that the rise of the love levels happened roughly around those seasons. And again, it was kind of one of the final pieces to solidifying how this game is played, which means obviously how we watch it as well. And now for our next item in the top 10, because we're in the middle here, we thought just like Dark Lord Harrison comes out of the middle of all the women coming out of the limos to see how the bachelor's holding up, we would check in (laughs) with the bachelors ourselves. Number five is our favorite bachelor. Pace Case and I are each going to discuss who we enjoyed (laughs) and why after we have now watched all 24 of their seasons. So I think I know what Clues is going to say. And I definitely (laughs) don't agree with it. Um, (laughs) I had a couple who were up there and I would just say like one of my like just general takeaways was that a lot of the bachelors are very similar to each other. They're very like earnest company men going along with everything the show wants and says and not really creating any waves. And for this reason, my favorite Bachelor was Charlie O'Connell, the Bachelor in season seven. Um, This is during the experimental era. So, you know, anything goes. We're doing it in different cities. There's all sorts of fuckarounds they're doing with the Fimpros. Sometimes there's two Fimproses. Sometimes you get it right when they step out of the limo. But Charlie O'Connell is the brother of Jerry O'Connell a famous actor and he kind of doesn't seem to have like this job doesn't seem to really (laughs) be a serious person in the slightest which is very different from a lot of the previous bachelors especially in this era you have Andy Baldwin he's the marine doctor you have Andrew Firestone they focus on how he's a wine owner and Jesse Palmer who's an NFL player They really focus on what the man's job is, and that's often how they brand the season. But Charlie O'Connell, they don't ever really talk about his job. He goes against the grain in a number of ways. There's no date cards. He calls them up casually on the phone. At one of the group dates, he ends up doing body shots with the contestants. He seems to be making some of his own rules. He refuses to say at the rose ceremony, will you accept this rose? And then at the end... He refuses to make a decision between his final two and he dates them for three months and then picks one at the Bachelor Live event. Just super entertaining to watch. And there seems to be an active disdain between him and Chris Harrison, which is a fascinating dynamic to watch. (laughs) There is an active disdain. Chris Harrison, for some reason, is always asked who's his favorite Bachelor, who's his least favorite. 
Charlie O'Connell was his least favorite up until Juan Pablo. <laughs> I think they actively despised each other because Charlie O'Connell. You can tell in the document. He refused to give in to the ceremony of it or adhere to kind of the structure they were building. In many ways, he was almost the fucking match that burned the whole thing down because they're trying to build the game. They're trying to mm-hmm. add things to it, take away, see what works, what doesn't. And he says, I'm not doing any of that. I love a chaos Go fuck game. yourselves. It was like Noah Herb as Bachelor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when they first meet each other, Dark Lord Harrison and Charlie O'Connell meet in the streets of New York City, I think out in front of Charlie's house or his, his condo or whatever. And Charlie kind of grabs Dark Lord Harrison by the shoulders and shakes him a little bit and is like, I'm so excited to get started. And you can see it immediately. This is their first meeting. And I fell in love at that moment. Dark Lord Harrison is <laughs> shaking the Dark Lord. Dark Lord Harrison's offended on every level. He doesn't want to be touched. Certainly you can't shake him because it's conveying that Charlie has more control of the situation than he does. And again and again, Charlie does this throughout the season up until the very end, even what you're talking about, where he's like, I know the show's supposed to be over, but I want to keep dating both of these final two outside of the situation. And then I'll have my decision for you later. And they have to adhere to it. And Dark Lord Harrison hates this shit. I'm going to be Polly for a few months and you just have to accept it and film it. Um, he, Yeah, he creates little bits and like little songs and like little... <laughs> he's just always fucking around. And... I definitely don't think he ever was saying the phrases they wanted him to, such as like, I see my wife in this room. Like, I would laugh so hard if he had actually said that. (laughs) He's like clearly looking for just like someone he can fuck around with. (laughs) And it's very entertaining to watch. Listen, I loved him. I mean, hands down, my second favorite Bachelor. But my favorite (laughs) Bachelor, of course, was the greatest player of all time, Nick Vial. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, why do you find that to be the best season? Why? Why is that your favorite? Yeah, you are asking yourself that. Why? I mean, Charlie created a whole fucking TV show within a TV show I was watching. As I said, he's he's number two for sure. But for me, Nick Vial represents a very unique thing in The Bachelor. Something really that we've never seen before in anyone else. Yes, he was a double runner-up. Yes, he had a full run on paradise we all know that oh my god your face your face is like glowing (laughs) like you're describing like the most beautiful human being in the universe it's like a sports writer who likes writing about michael jordan this is my michael jordan i don't know what to tell you and in the season you got you just got a pace case glow right there (laughs) (laughs) i can tell you have real feelings i gotta go Okay. Oh, shit. That's what gets me out of the pit. I'm like, I can't get a glow about Nick fucking Bial. Oh, Jesus. I'm sorry. Continue. Go back in. He... (laughs) Ultimately, the crown is the final reward. It's like winning an NBA championship. And for him, that's all that matters. He has the ring now. And the ring is the choice. When the producers say, you're the next Bachelor, the game is over for him as soon as he gets that call. He doesn't give a fuck about the show now. He's won the top honor. He doesn't want to find a mate. He is now living through the most hollow moment of his life. It's like when an Olympic medalist has trained whole life, 20 fucking whatever years, and they go to the Olympics and they know they've got one shot and they win the gold medal. What is it like the next morning waking up knowing that that's done now? The whole thing you trained your whole life for just ended. (laughs) 
That's where Nick Vial is on day one of shooting. There is a sorrow, a somber sadness <laughs> to that season that no other season has. Support for today's episode comes from One Skin. If you have sensitive skin, you're going to want to hear about One Skin's scientifically proven topical supplements. This is face, eye, body, shield, and it can all be used with any of their other products which are free from over 1,500 chemicals and preservatives that can make skin red, irritated, or itchy. Their products are safe for sensitive skin. It's just one of the reasons they've earned the Skin Safe seal of approval. You got to keep that skin glowing if you want to be keeping up the level of face play that I've got going on. And One Skin was founded by an all-woman team of scientists. Their products are backed by extensive lab and clinical data to validate their efficacy and safety on all skin types. Uh, their topical supplements are the easiest way to keep your skin healthy and hydrated without the harsh ingredients or irritation found in other skincare products often. One Skin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, One Skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code ROSES at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code ROSES. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support Gore and tell them that we sent you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is flying by. We're almost halfway through it. Now, I've done a lot of things that I'm proud of this year. A lot of them related to gore. We've had some great interviews. We're kicking it up a level to get on YouTube. We're really taking it to the next place. But there's still a lot that I would like to accomplish this year. And when life is moving fast, it's important to take a moment to celebrate your wins and to make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you take stock of your progress and then set achievable goals for the next six months so that you get all those things done that you want to get done. Lizzie talks about all the time how beneficial therapy has been for her. My friend Will on my other podcast talks about it all the time, and I agree. It is very good. It's a great tool to be able to talk things out in your life with somebody else who can set you on the right path to getting all those goals accomplished. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists literally at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Game of Roses today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Game of Roses. Clues. I've been on a mission. I'm trying to find Ooh. the perfect t-shirt. Yeah. Um, because it's spring. I'm ready to get out there. I'm ready to peacock. Luckily, the perfect t-shirt does exist. And you can find it at Skims. From cropped silhouettes to long sleeve layering tees, there's a style for everyone. You guys know how excited I was that Skims became one of our sponsors for this podcast. They have great basics and foundations. I got the boyfriend t-shirt in Onyx. That's kind of a dark black color. And the cotton jersey long sleeve t-shirt in Kyanite, which is kind of like a blue green. And they're both so comfortable. It's basically like you are wearing no nothing. 
Great for free spirit types. Well, for all the free spirits out there right now, you can shop the Skims t-shirt shop at skims.com. Now available in sizes XXS through 4X. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcasts in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Again, that's Skims. As Oh my god, you and I like bachelors for completely opposite reasons. Mine was like, Charlie is a sparkling light, and yours is like, Nick is a hollow darkness. <laughs> He's a tragic figure in Bachelor Nation. There have been a few, for sure. Chris Souls, I think, is a tragic figure in Bachelor Nation. But Nick is more a tragic figure because He's killed. he got everything. He really, even though he didn't win the rings... He was close enough that he basically won those seasons. He was like a in a the NBA, a team that goes to the playoffs every year. Even the finals, really, that goes to the finals every year. And then they're just looking for the win, the win, the win, the win. And he finally gets it, but it's fucking hollow because now the game doesn't mean anything to him. Once he attains the victory, he doesn't care. And that season is just so fucking brilliant to watch through that lens. Please, anyone, go back and do it. Think of him as a man who knows he can never taste greatness again and watch everything <laughs> he does in that. It will blow your mind. I mean, was he our saddest bachelor? By far. Probably. By far. Yeah. And is it any coincidence that his season was shot during the literal months Donald Trump won the presidency? You think he was nervous about the election? No, no, no. I just think the way the media is presented, the world that The Bachelor looks like in that mm. season is the world that's about to fucking jump into the Donald Trump four-year nightmare. And it's all right there. Rachel Lindsay God, lands funny. that season, lands in Finland for Fantasy Suites, walks off the fucking plane and hears Donald Trump just got elected president. Now she has to go have a date with Nick Vial. Yes, it tainted that season. It touched it. And it's in there. Like, there are the Make Corinne Great Again hats that look like Donald Trump hats. Mm -hmm. That season to me, and Nick Vial is a result of it, is just one, it's the most interesting that exists from a perspective of kind of cultural record. The other ones are, like, the ones that were happening during Obama were like, it's a fucking good time. Sean Lowe, that season's fucking, that's just fun. Nothing crazy happens. It is fun. He's like, I'm here for the right reasons and fucking... Catherine's like, me too? Tierra. Oh, Tierra's the best one. Tierra has full <laughs> fake IFI. She's fully acting that she's got hypothermia and all this shit. Tierra held up for me. I was like, I had remembered her as being amazing, and then she just was. So it wasn't a big revelation, but God, I love her. Absolutely. And there were a bunch of those seasons that had just like fun shit. But I'm telling you, that Nick Vial season, it changes. Mm -hmm. And it, it also sets a tone in kind of what players can be because you're now watching a player himself as the lead, as the bachelor watching people play. It's the first time you really see like a, a master player watching other players play and you can see him rewarding the things that he likes like Corinne's overbearing play style her hyper aggression. He himself had that play style in his rookie season. And so you see him reward her and keep her around it's fantastic to watch if you watch it through this lens of that. The darkest lens imaginable. <laughs> 
I don't know. It just it's more interesting to me than the surface level mm. jokes and stuff that we're used to. It had a different level to it. That's all I'm saying. And by the way, it gave us fucking Rachel Lindsay. He was part of that plan. No, undeniable. I would rather watch Nick Viola's season again, but I definitely preferred Charlie O'Connell as Bachelor. By the way, I also <laughs> loved watching Matt Grant with Shane Lamas. I was very struck by how much I wanted real love to happen when I was watching back all these seasons. Maybe Clues and I had completely opposite uh, <laughs> views of this whole thing. I totally agree with you. I loved that relationship. It That was, to me, the most genuine relationship I've seen yet in the show. Even what Sean and Catherine had to me wasn't as genuine as that. I really loved them together. I was sad they broke up. And I think that my want for there to be real love and relationships that comes out of this is stronger than I had thought before doing the power binge. Because I was like, I think it's fueled sort of some of my Bachelor alternate universe theories. Because I'm like, I want there to be a universe where it works out for them. It's very optimistic. I suppose that is just kind of a cliffhanger style thing baked into the very show itself. Will love happen? And will you believe it's actual? Mm-hmm. that's kind of another layer of that now. The lie is, yes, we're helping people find love. And now it's like, well, you know that's going to be conveyed one way or another. They're going to lie to us about that. Or is it real? And I do feel like it was real with them. You're right. It seemed very fucking genuine. <laughs> yeah. I remember just one of her hoojis. She gently gets on him, climbs on him from a wall, and it's so cute. This guy is British, Matt Grant. He's from London, and he calls her his little monkey. Oh, I love yeah. it when my little monkey <laughs> crawls on me back. So yeah, season 12, if you want to hear that exact accent that Clues just did. <laughs> I mean, it's not that good. <laughs> His is better. Speaking of some of our favorite players in Bachelor history to watch, there was one player who... Is up there for my favorite player of all time. She is with me as well. I think she may be my favorite player of all time. Yeah. The most fascinating person to watch. She was our first villain champion that we have ever had. And also our first real overt player that we ever had. I'm talking about Courtney Robertson from Ben Flashnick's season. Holy fucking shit. Courtney Robertson is our number four. Four, most important item of information, piece of data, new thing we didn't know about that we took away from the Hyperbench. She plays, prob- I would probably argue, the best single game in our show's history. Hmm. 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 That's, that's saying something. I don't know if I can go there all the way with you. <laughs> What Madison Pruitt and Hannah Sluss did on PPE's season. I don't know that there's better play than that. Were they as entertaining to watch? Oh, no. I would say that Maddie and Hannah are not as interesting to watch as Courtney. Yeah, fuck, I don't know. That's um, hard. That's another she, whole podcast. What was the greatest I mean, single her performance? first audience oh, game. God. I mean, her first audience, like maybe she's the best first audience player, you know? We can divide them by who is the best player of each audience. She had Ben Flagnick from the very beginning, and then she just fucked with everyone in the house the whole time and got through it all. And it was <laughs> absolutely incredible to watch. We will be doing a Gore All Stars episode about her. She was 
a villain by episode three and then just continued to be a more heinous villain in each episode and kept winning and winning (laughs) and winning. And you were like, he's going to see through it. He's going to see through it. Never fucking sees through it. She wins the fucking ring. She's tattled on over and over again. Doesn't work. Doesn't take. She would have been an incredible bachelorette. She would have been probably the greatest bachelorette of all time. Because she would be the saddest, darkest bachelorette of all time. (laughs) Because you could tell what she really enjoyed wasn't even winning. Yes, she was competitive, but what she enjoyed was the manipulation. What Nick Vial enjoys is the winning. He just uses the manipulation to get to it. He doesn't really care about the manipulation. He likes the victory. I think Courtney Robertson liked the art of manipulation because it wasn't for her just about moving to the next round and getting the ring. It was about fucking these other players up. She was so fucking brilliant to watch. And also, she's playing in an era, season 16, when we don't really yet see the rise of proto players or multiple audience players so if you have a strong specific audience game which she did her first audience game as you said i agree with you is unmatched we've never seen a first audience game like this a complete total mesmerization of the lead this man is a zombie for her it is incredible to see (laughs) those other players didn't stand a fucking chance because that was still in an era when there wasn't a lot of competition talk being put in the document. People wouldn't talk about it in that way. It was still kind of verboten. All of her ITMs are about winning gameplay. This other player is playing a dumb game. I'm beating them at their own game. All this kind of shit. And you're just like, oh God, she's the only one who gets this. She's the only one who understands the sport. She blows everyone else out of the water. There's no one even close to her on her season. It certainly is the most dominant performance of all time bar none other than maybe dale moss which is a kind of a special thing we need to see something Mm -hmm. like that happen again before we can determine what the nature of it is really we saw a very isolated incident with dale moss winning the whole game of four episodes but courtney robertson just wins it through brilliance i mean the performance really is at a level that would have contended in any modern era game and she was doing yeah. it against prior era players. I would love, oh God, I would love to see her play again. I want so badly to watch a like actual Bachelor All-Stars season where they just have all the players are women who have played before for one Bachelor. Oh, God, who is that Bachelor? I want to see that so badly. You're fucking literally describing my wildest dreams. I think it's, it has to be someone really good. It has to be like someone who people would kill for. In our game, I feel like that would be like Peter Kraus. People are obsessed with him and want him to be Bachelor. But it also could be a celebrity. That's who it should be. And okay, so who are we putting in this? Like how far back do we go? Is Tina Fabulous in it? I think she's married. (laughs) Well, Courtney's married too, but I want her to play. We go to Tina Fabulous and we go to Courtney Robertson and we'd be like, look... If you're both willing to get divorced and leave your families, we can offer you fame. I want to see Demi. I want to see Caitlyn. So is this a fantasy realm where anyone can play? This isn't a real show. Yes, it's a fantasy realm. What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not I'm actually casting you it. The rules. I want it to happen. I'm trying to manifest it. I'm asking it you the rules podcast. of this game. Okay. Well, look, maybe this is a whole other fucking episode. <laughs> this might be another episode. Who we. You and me should are, just find out who are the 32 players we want to see on our dream Jesus Christ. episode. Yeah, we'll save that. <laughs> Hannah Brown. She's in there. Possible future episode where we do our. 30 dream players what would the all-star season look like of an episode of the bachelor maybe that'll be our next patreon speaking of fun experiments our third revelation in the gore hyper binge was regarding the experimental era i don't know i don't think i even remember that there had been two bachelors or that they had fucked around with honestly any of this I thought it had gone pretty standard from season one, and then they just, you know, added episodes and made it longer. But seasons four through 12, they truly fucked with the format. Starting in season four, they have Bob Guinea come in. He was on a bachelorette season, so the women were already obsessed with him going into night one. That's when we saw our first night one kiss, because it just amped up the stakes so much because we already knew who this guy was. And so did the women. And they don't start doing that permanently until Mesny, but it adds a great element to the game. And that was a lesson, obviously, that they learned from Bachelorette, casting their first Bachelorette, Trista, who was the runner-up on season one of Bachelor. We also had a mole on season five. I had no idea that that had happened. Jenny de Shirali was the, what they called her the spy, and she was a friend of Jesse's. And she just pretended to be one of the players and spied on them and then filled in Jesse on who was 4TWR. It was amazing. I want it to happen again. I think it's been long enough. I don't think they're going to do it again because it, it's too contrary to the idea that this is for the right reasons. It makes it a little bit more of a Big Brother type show. I don't think they'll dip back into it, but it was fascinating to watch them try it. And that's why I say, too, that's a strategy. You can just do that as a player. Be like, I'll be your mole. It's a brilliant strategy. But she was arguably for TRR, figuring out which players actually were for TRR, because there is a delineation in the show. They're often like, oh, she's different with us than she is with you. And she would say how they were with the group. And they did get a bonus little piece of drama out of it when she finally outs herself to the rest of the players, some of whom she has befriended. As a spy, yeah, they have mixed upset. reactions about that, to say the least. They get a little <laughs> moment out of it. Maybe they would do it again. Shit, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, we saw season five also had the very first first impression rose ever. Dark Lord Harrison emerges after Jesse Palmer meets his 30 women. They've all gone into the house. Dark Lord Harrison comes out and he says, hey, I've got a little something for you. And he hands him a rose as they're standing in front of the fucking mansion. He says, this is a first impression rose. I want you to give it to somebody tonight who makes a good first impression on you and it means they're safe at the rose ceremony. He then tucks this rose into the waistband of his pants (laughs) and hides it in In his his fucking balls. That's how the first first impression rose is delivered into the game. Is not on a silver platter like we've become used to at the hands of the Dark Lord, but on the balls of an NFL quarterback. You're telling me football (laughs) has nothing to do with this? Come on. Trish Snyder got that first impression rose. A villain on that season. Also a fun player to watch. Yeah, I, you know, I've been watching this show since season one. Theoretically, I'd seen all these seasons, but I just 
had blocked the experimental era out of my mind, did not remember it happening. I had seen some of these too, but I didn't remember like season four was the first night one curveball. They bring the bachelor Bob Guinea's mother out to the cocktail party and she's talking with the women and, and he has to pretend like, oh shit, I didn't know my mom was going to be here. <laughs> he has like a crazy laugh like oh, that. Oh, that was a good impression of his you laugh. remember his laugh? His laugh sounds like a dolphin, especially at two, two times speed when we're watching. Yeah. It is insane. We don't know if that was officially an experiment in these seasons, but his laugh was intense. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't fit in boob zone or experiment zone. We had season six that had, not only was it two bachelors and the women had to vote on them, not only did the bachelor live on the property, it had the first ever bring players back, one of whom was Mary Delgado, who we might be speaking about in a moment. That was the first time that we ever saw that, a player get another chance at it. Yeah, vets on their second tour. It opened that season with the two bachelors sitting in a little room watching footage of the players as they were out by the pool. So they got to kind of spy on them before they met them. It was our first surveillance. We had two seasons in this era that took place off of U.S. soil. Season eight, Travis Stork was in Paris. Season nine, Prince Lorenzo Borghese was in Rome. And I remember on his season... They have all the women come in. They're all from America. They're mingling. They're having their night one. And then they bring in two Roman women who can barely speak English. And they're like, throw them in the pool. That was the night one curveball. And we get our first Italian steal with that, where players steal back from the person who stole from them. The two Italian women did that. Agnese Polizza and Cosetta Blanca, inventors of the Italian steel. Immortalized in our beloved game. Technically, Bob Guinea had the first group date rose, but it was an inversion of the group date rose. What does that mean, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you. (laughs) The players are all told when Dark Lord Harrison in the very beginning comes in for the group date that there's going to be a twist on these group dates. There may be a possibility Dark Lord Harrison himself will show up on the group date. If that happens, there's going to be group date roses. So not only is the first group date rose this weird thing that I'm about to talk about, But it gives us the first hint that Chris Harrison is an evil figure to be feared. You don't want him showing up on your (laughs) group date. Because as I said, it's an inverse of a group date rose. If there are five people in the group date, there are four roses. They are white. And if you don't get one, you go home. It's not a red rose. That means you stay. It's white roses that if you don't get one, you go home. It is like, an again, an inverted version of what we now have as the group date rose. It is stick, not carrot. And so you also have in that season, Dark Lord Harrison doesn't move. When they cut to him, he's just there. Notable. It was notable season. to me. It was creepy as fuck. You don't see him walking anywhere. He's just there. The first time he shows up for the group date roses, for example... Bob Guinea and all the players are sitting outside at this cafe or like a after party of the group date. And they're sitting around kind of a horseshoe little area. They cut from that conversation. It's a high angle over Bob Guinea's left shoulder and he's looking at them and talking. They cut from it. No tings. They cut from it. And you just see Chris Harrison standing and staring, holding a plate of white roses. He's just there. He's appeared like a fucking specter of death to deliver the knockout punch to one of these women sitting at this after party. Yep. 
the one of the top ten most notable moments from all Bachelor seasons. <laughs> it was for me. <laughs> I remembered it. Oh man! In season ten, Andy Baldwin. It's not producer fuckery, but we did have our first dynamic duo. These two blonde white women, Erin Parker and Susan Anderson. They had this triathlon group date where all the women were supposed to swim laps and oh, run around the pool, and instead they just held hands and walked. <laughs> and Andy Baldwin like acknowledged it. it. Was like, I think they might be, you know, more interested in talking to each other than to me. It was the first time we really focused on a friendship, which would be an important aspect of gameplay going forward. And then the experimental era rounds out with season 11 being the first time we see the actual mansion that they still use now. Up until that point, it had been a variety of a Malibu mansion, a castle in France, a New York loft in season seven, Charlie O'Connell. By the way, in that season, they didn't have group date cards or one-on-one date cards. They had phone calls. And he would call the women, and the women would decide which players went on the group date. And that added this very weird dynamic to the group dates. Because we had this one woman, they like decide amongst themselves, okay, these six go on. And then this one woman just snuck down anyway. So then this other girl got kicked off the date. <laughs> to me, this is a huge mistake by the producers to not keep including this. There should be at least one group date where the women decide who goes on it. We had Matt Grant, who was. Not our first international uh, bachelor, but he was our last one for a while until Juan Pablo, who's technically Miami. And it was the last time that we saw under two hour regular episodes. That would be it for that era. It closes it out. And now what you're going to get is essentially almost every season, 12 episodes that contains a women to all and an after the final rose. Sometimes these are three hours. There have been elaborate productions around the opening and closing that sometimes exceed two hours, but starting in season 13, you get two-hour episodes, you're at the mansion, you have every limo exit, you have all the roses, except those first weird white group date roses. And it basically is the game as we know it. And so season 12 was the last season of that experimental era, which we owe everything to. That's where the game was born. It was the volcanic (laughs) bubbling ooze that eventually spit out a giant diamond called The Bachelor. It was the twinkle in Ari's eye that made little Alessi our modern game. (laughs) (laughs) And at our number two most important thing that we took away from the hyper binge, we want to discuss the role of villains. We know now there's always going to be a villain, and it's going to happen by episode two. They might even start building it episode one, like they tried to do with Hannah Brown and Kaylin Miller-Keys in Colton's 23rd season of The Bachelor. Or night one with Chelsea on Ari's season. Gave her a night one villain edit. The evolution of the villain was something I had no idea about. Because these types of characters are common to virtually every reality show, There's some asshole or a villain in some capacity on every reality show. Because it was so ingrained, I just kind of took it for granted that that must have been there from the beginning. That's like a piece of the, at least the way they composed Mm -hmm. the document that was probably a linchpin from day one. And it was not. The first villain technically was Rhonda Rittenhouse on season one, but it was nothing 
She does have the first, I'm not here to make friends. She does literally say that phrase in an ITM, but it's not. She has not- an IFI panic attack. Um, she shot our first gun we saw on the document. She's shooting a rifle off the back of a boat when they're on a group date and they're, they're <laughs> flinging clay pigeons out into the sea and she's knocking them out of the sky like nothing. <laughs> but yeah, she didn't have a multiple episode villain arc. Didn't really get a rivalry with anyone. And over the seasons, the producers really did start to understand the value of the villain and this rivalry. The first two-on-one, for example, which was designed in the experimental era, as we know, was between Trish Schneider and Mandy J. And that's where we first see rivalry being set up. This idea of pitting two players against each other specifically now emerges in season five. And that's really where your villain starts to come from. You always need a villain and somebody who wants to fight the villain. And that is how they build rivalries every time. By the way, there wasn't even a rose on the first two-on-one. Nor was that date the hostile environment we've come to know and love. Now, group dates take place in a swamp (laughs) or out in a fucking desert, and they helicopter away and leave one person just standing there to die. Back in this era, they went to a bar and then wound up in a spa getting a massage. It was a very different (laughs) two-on-one. The producers didn't yet understand the value in making the environment itself as hostile Of a swamp seance. As we saw the rise of the villains, we also saw the villains getting more screen time. Now, you've heard me talk about Quince on this program before. I love Quince. I am right now, head to toe, dressed in Quince. I got their shirts, I got their pants, I got everything from Quince. Quince is my spot for quiet luxury without paying those luxury prices. Quince offers a range of must-have items like 100% European linen, under $50, luxurious mulberry silk skirts, and of course, Italian leather bags and 14 karat gold jewelry from, get this, $30. All their prices are 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And because Quince creates timeless classic styles that won't go out of fashion, you're going to have them in that closet forever, unless you wear them out, which I may because I literally wear them every day. <laughs> I know you're wondering, how do they do it? Well, Quince partners directly with top factories to cut out the cost of the middleman, passing the savings right on to you and to me. What's even better, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium eco-friendly fabrics and finishes so you can feel good about getting high-quality items that are going to last you longer. Upgrade your closet this summer with Quince. Right now, go to quince.com slash roses to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash roses for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash roses. We're coming out of spring and we're headed into summer. It's a great time of year. It's a time for renewal. For me, that means reconnecting with friends and family I haven't seen for a while. And when I do, I want to make sure I have plenty of wine on hand to celebrate with. That's why First Leaf is a great option. As America's most personalized wine company, First Leaf takes the worry and guesswork out of buying quality wines, especially if you're somebody like me 
who knows maybe a little bit about these things, but not enough, not enough to really make a great decision. They make the decision for you. To get started, you just answer some specific questions about your wine likes and dislikes on First Leaf's website. And these can be things that are about the people you're buying it for as well, if you're doing it as a gift. It only takes about five minutes to create your own personalized wine profile. Then you get your very own wine concierge who's going to use those responses to curate a customized selection of delicious award-winning varieties from rosés to sparklings and everything in between. It's all based on your personal preferences, on those questions you answered. These hand-selected wines are going to be delivered to your door within a few days with each bottle priced lower than what you'd pay at a wine store. You even get to choose when you get the wine. Plus, Every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. And if you have questions about your wines, like what to pair them with, for example, First Leaf's personal wine concierge team is there to offer that expert advice. So it takes all the guesswork out. I love reconnecting with friends and family over bottles of First Leaf wine, and I bet you'll feel that way too. So give First Leaf a try. Head over to tryfirstleaf.com slash roses to sign up and save 50% on your first six hand-curated bottles plus free shipping. That's T-R-Y. F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F dot com slash roses to save 50% on your first six bottles plus free shipping. Try firstleaf.com slash roses. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Time. And this was the main takeaway for me is that the villains are almost entirely in the editing. We knew this to be true, but it has been clarified going back. I had remembered Vienna as being this horrible, horrible villain in Jake Pavelka's season and that she was the absolute worst. And then we go back and watch and she's not really a villain at all. It's kind of nothing. and. Then she further gets victimized by uh, Jake Pavelka, who seems like a sociopath in the after the final rose when he breaks up with her. Um, it definitely wasn't as I remembered. And I think that is <laughs> a nod to the editing. It was successful. It's not just the editing. It's that villains then take on the second life now in social media, but then it was still in gossip tabloids and stuff in Us Weekly and whatever. Once you became the villain, you got a cover of the magazine, which other players were not fucking getting. And you got a big interview about who's the villain and oh my God, what are you really like? And so now that obviously bears out in Instagram bumps. As soon as you get a villain edit, you go fucking way up. And it all started kind of in this weird middle era. And it became a goal to some degree in itself. And we see that bear out with people like Tiara on Sean Lowe's season. She purposely became a villain to get attention. And there also became many different types of villains. You had like a Courtney Robertson who was an alpha villain. She's a villain because she's playing the game better than you. You had Tiara who's kind of an attention villain who's going to do things for TWR to get Sean to come look at her and fawn over her. But she's not really playing any other game than that. We'll probably do a whole separate villains episode because it is one of our favorite aspects of the game. So look out for that. The role of the villain cannot be understated. It is 
one of the cornerstones of the fucking game. Can you imagine now having a season without a villain? Could you imagine what that would even look like? No. It can't happen. I feel like it would be terrible. The villain turn (laughs) in episodes two through four is a piece of it. You can't even have a season without it now. And something else that you wouldn't have a season without is our number one most valuable item of information we took away from the hyperbench. It is a person. It is a player. It is maybe the greatest player of all time. She first appeared as a player in season four. Bob Guinea was then Bachelor. She walked away in third place. She then reappeared in season six. The Bachelor who won the double Bachelor duel, Byron Velvick, was that Bachelor. She won the ring. So, this is my argument about why she might be the best player. Uh, Nick Vial never got a ring. He never got a ring. And this player played in the experimental era, arguably the most difficult era to play in because it was so volatile. You had no idea what the fucking game even was, let alone how to play it. She was creating rules on the fly. One of those things she created was the Hooju. That's right. Our number one most valuable piece of information from the Hyperbinge <laughs> is Mary Delgado, arguably the greatest player of all time. You're neglecting a huge piece of this for me, which is that we had always assumed that Rachel Lindsay, Catherine Lowe, that these were the first players of color to make it to hometowns and beyond. That there's this idea that we call the brown ceiling, which is where players of color do not go far on this show. Mary Delgado is Latinx. She gets third. She got a fucking fantasy suite on Bob Guinea's season, and then she gets the ring season four. This is way earlier in the game than I thought that something like this was possible. I couldn't believe I had never heard of her. Actually, I had heard of her, but the reason is not for this. The reason is that she later assaulted Byron and there was a whole domestic situation. They stayed together for a long time even after that, but um, I think that's part of why she's not a revered character in our game. Yeah, she never gets brought back for anything. I mean, they didn't get married, so I guess it's not a success story. But she and Byron did show up on a couple of the After the Final Roses and stuff and some of the things where they would wheel out couples together. And when she was the ring winner, she was 36 years old. I mean, she was breaking multiple barriers at once. Byron was the first 40-year-old bachelor. Yeah, I think about Mary Delgado daily at this point literally either thinking back on her game i mean inventing the fucking huju it's hard for me to put into words what that means to me because i believe the huju is such an integral part of the modern game and she invented it in season six when byron velvick met her for her hometown she was out in the middle of a softball field and he comes walking out and she does a very fast jog to him jumps into the air and it's not the cleanest huju but she does manage just to get her legs around him one leg okay one leg but <laughs> it still is important because it's the first time we've seen that on camera 
which means I have to imagine the producers did not set this up. Now they do. Now they tell you to do a hooju. You stand over there. He's going to come up from over here, run as fast as you can to him and jump as hard as you can to him. They probably are, have a video that teaches you how to do a hooju. Then they didn't have that shit. She just made this up. She also had the first uh, meeting of the family that took place in another language. Their family spoke Spanish when they met Byron. I mean, that season was such an insane one to even come into. There's two bachelors and they're going to be living with the bachelor. They're, he's also 40. There's just a lot of changes that season that you might not expect after three pretty standard seasons. And she came into that season late, like in episode three. Yeah. Season six, she comes in with the other all-star Heather and you have an immediate target on your back. This is the first time we've seen this in our beloved game. Players coming back, players crashing the season. This obviously is what Nick Vial did to get on Caitlin Bristow's season. It started with Mary Delgado. I was under the impression that Nick Vial was the first one to do that. It was Mary Delgado. <laughs> she came in in season six and won the fucking ring. Mary Delgado is, simply put, I think, the most important single player ever of all time. Whether or not she's the greatest, that's a debate for sure. But I don't think there's a a debate about the fact that she contributed more to the game than anyone, especially because she did it in those early years. She was in two Mm -hmm. of all of the experimental seasons. Two of the first ones, these fundamental ones where weird ass shit was being, two fucking bachelors. That's weird as shit. (laughs) Were they thinking they were only going to do that one season or were they like, if this is super popular, we should do this every season? I wonder. They could have gone differently. People didn't like it. I mean, they did it once more. They did it with Caitlin and Britt. They did spread it out to Bachelorette. But all the weird shit they did that season was difficult to navigate, to say the least, and she navigated it better than anyone. I was flabbergasted that we didn't know who she was before this. And that's why she's our number one revelation. And her her game, her style of play was really transcendental. It was a type of play that would work still today. It was about 80-20, 4TRR, 4TWR. A lot of her wanted to find love and did want a relationship. And there was about 20% that was hyper-competitive and wanted to win. And it was the exact right mix in this early environment to just fucking wreck people. And it would come out of nowhere sometimes. You'd be at a rose ceremony and be like, oh, this is Delgado's turn. She's going home. Nope. No, never. God, she was just a pleasure to watch. If you can get your hands on season four and season six, highly, highly recommend. Thank you, Mary Delgado, for building the game on your back. Really? I feel like she was like a Honus Wagner or something early like late 1800s baseball player yes of course a honus type (laughs) i'm just saying there are honus wagner oh my god there are players who played baseball in the late 1890s and early 1900s whose names you'll never know no one will but they were stars of that era and because there were stars it drew people to the game and that allowed it to grow to what it is today She was one Mm -hmm. of those. She was one of the people you were watching to be like, fuck, how is she doing this? Because even then, people didn't know overtly it was a game. There wasn't even that discussion. But 
still we're watching it. Our brains are picking up that pattern of the game and it's hooking us into this media. That's why we keep watching it. And she was the first superstar. Couldn't agree more. Her and Courtney Robertson, two huge highlights for me. Female play. Well, that's it. We got through our top 10 list. A couple of notable (laughs) mentions were season three, the first episode. They showed how they were casting The Bachelor and they showed some of the other guys. They didn't tell you who The Bachelor was until the end kind of of that episode they revealed, but this is The Bachelor. And in these intro packages that they did for some of these guys, there was a guy named Dane Blanton, who was an Olympic gold medal beach volleyball player, and he was black. Season three. He could have been the first black bachelor in season three. Instead, they wait 22 seasons (laughs) until season 25. That is fucking crazy. That's a Bachelor alternate universe right there. Dane Blanton is the third Bachelor. Are you kidding me? What would the game look like? It would be, I think, incredibly diverse at this point. I think you would have seen a wide variety of Bachelor's ethnicities at this point. Instead, you basically have white and one black guy. And one Pablo who's white presenting. But Latinx. And that was that was another another takeaways. A lot of the bachelors are very similar. They're earnest, bland white dudes. When we had to watch another Brad Womack season, ugh, it it really made me appreciate pee pee. That's how bland these men were. <laughs> the Travis Stork era was um, hard to watch for that reason. One thing that I did find interesting too was the strange role of twins in our beloved game. There have been a couple of appearances of twins. The first two were on Bob Guinea's season, and they came out of the limo together, and they were presented as a duo, and they got kicked off night one. Then you had the Ferguson twins in season 20, Ben Higgins. They were also presented as a duo coming out of the limo at the same time, but they made it much further and ultimately were forced to go on a two-on-one date with each other. (laughs) One rose, one goes, two-on-one. And then, of course, we had... Brad Womack, the bachelor himself, the double bachelor, he had a twin brother, Chad, and they used him on a date once to come in and pretend to be Brad Womack. And then Brad Womack watched video of the women to see who could actually discern it wasn't him. It was so funny. (laughs) It was messed up, though. We've had some other twins in Bachelor Nation, but never any that were featured to this magnitude. Um, Also, Sean Lowe is in basically every season since his own season they bring him back again and again and as the only bachelor of these 24 that we watched to marry his final pick you understand why he is the uh, mount rushmore dlh says he would be on the mount rushmore him and ben higgins for bachelors a uh low point in the power binge was the last season we actually watched which was colton's season and it is very creepy to watch back uh knowing what we know now there's just a lot of lines by women saying that he made them feel safe and it's just it just puts this whole different darker spin on watching it um but also his season was filled with powerhouses of the game we had two bachelorettes from that season uh Hannah Brown and Tasha Kayla Miller-Keys, Cassie. I mean, just a lot of very strong players. Demi, Katie Moe. I agree with you. It was hard to watch back. 
He has countless conversations with different players saying that he doesn't give up on relationships. He'll fight no matter what. Watching that back is a little different than when we watched it play the first time now. Yeah, and Cassie trying to leave him and him refusing to accept that result. And I also agree with you, the the players on that season were just fucking lights out. That was the first real season where you're like, oh, Jesus, there's five or six interesting players who were doing very high-level plays. None of them yet were for audience players, but we were getting there. We were creeping into that, into a Sloss, a Pruitt. Obviously, it was the next season. One thing that I noticed, especially when we're splitting up the eras, um, and the you know, the modern era begins at Jason Mesnick's season. And that's because there is such a stunning effect of parasocial relationships on the seasons, and it makes it much better. Bob Guinea is the first bachelor who had been on Bachelorette. They had the first night one kiss. All of the women were much more aggressive. We had a woman in her intro video being like, I'm in love with Bob. And the, it just ups the ante from the very beginning. And I get why they have done it from Jason Mesnick on until Matt James, who technically was a preseason player. And I argue it doesn't matter. You don't need him to be on the TV show now because you got social media. All the players on Matt James season. crew. Yeah. He was basically already on a show with Tyler Cameron and Hannah Brown. Yeah. There is no better advertising for him in terms of uh, players being able to develop parasocial relationships with him prior to this. Because also they had five months. They know that every one of the women they put on that show, they probably asked him, do you know who the quarantine crew is? Yeah. That's what we learned in the hyper binge, the top 10 things anyway. We learned about a million things, but those were the 10 kind of most important (laughs) that we felt we would share with you here today. How do you feel, Pace Case? I feel like we really fucking know the game well. I mean, we're just like going back here, going back and forth to being like, what season were the twins on? Ben Higgins season 20. You know, just these facts are coming to me faster than I realized that they would have. And I'm just like, oh my God, I've internalized so much information about one topic. (laughs) In this very episode where I basically gave a photographic memory recalling of the first time Dark Lord Harrison appeared on a group date to hand out four white (laughs) group date anti-roses. I was, I was like, I guess that's in there. I can see it. I can see it in my fucking head. Oh my God, that was shocking. Yeah, there's a lot of different episodes that we want to do from the Patreon that have been inspired by this, you know, an episode about villains, a bunch of different player episodes we really want to do. And it's going to be, it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm looking super fucking forward to doing the 32 players in the all-star game and who the bachelor is with you. I think that's going to be very fucking fun. Yeah. God, I, my head is swirling with who could be Bachelor of that season. And this is, are we saying throughout time, throughout history, alive or dead? What about Tyler Cameron? That's very hard to beat. Wow, that's a good <laughs> one. That's a real good one. Mm-hmm. So are we going to say, but these can be throughout time. These are players in their prime. What if Tyler Cameron was the next Bachelor after Matt James? I think he's realizing that he needs it, the Bachelor people. I could see him doing it. Yeah, I Tyler Cameron as Bachelor would be earth shattering. The level of play you would see on that season would set a new bar. 
we've already seen a woman try to crash his real life bachelor show <laughs> when this fan of his flew to his house in the quarantine crew and showed up with a suitcase at their door who didn't know any of them. Think about that. That is how obsessed some of these women will be with him. All that said, <laughs> that's something that a lot of bachelors say before they give a rose. <laughs> with that being said, will you accept this rose? With that being said, we're going to have a lot of great uh, Patreon episodes coming to you from our wonderful gemstones we have found deep in the pit with the hyperbend. I have never felt like an expert about something more than I feel about this. <laughs> I don't think we have rivals in the world at this point, and we're not even close to where we're going to wind up. I know we've compiled half of the information now, and we've seen the larger pattern. I know you of it. said you're going to fucking blast The Bachelor on four TV screens of different seasons in our office. <laughs> Repetitive viewing reveals new information. No, but I mean, we still have Bachelorette and BIP to go through, and Bachelor Pad to go through, and Bachelor Pad. Let's yeah. fucking throw Winter Games in there. That's I want to see it all. I want to see the whole thing, <sighs> beginning to end. I mean, I've seen the whole thing, but. I, it's definitely different watching it now than when I was just watching for pleasure as a youth. And I feel like all the things we know, we can, you know, those are just, again, the top 10. There's so much more and there's so much more yet to learn in studying this as it deserves to be studied that I am happy to be doing it with you for at least the rest of those episodes. God, what, what are we going to be like at the end of that hyper binge? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We'll just become pure data. We'll fucking float into the ether as little glowing numbers up into the telephone lines. We'll be in the internet. We'll live forever like Lawnmower Man. <laughs> That's what happens when you hyper binge everything. What's, uh, what's that podcast Game of Roses like? Oh, it's like the Lawnmower Man of The Bachelor. <laughs> what's Lawnmower Man? I don't know. <laughs> That's a reference. It's that like the money ball people will of understand. The Bachelor. Everyone knows Moneyball. It is more like the Moneyball. But uh, thank you, everyone, for joining in this celebration with us. We have rambled at times, but hopefully it was entertaining. <laughs> Perhaps. This has been a great pleasure to do. This was one of the most fun episodes I, I have ever done with you, for yeah. me. And maybe that's it the was. weed talking, but... <laughs> it could be. Maybe something to consider. Um I know. Well, it is like we have put in so much work and these are the fruits of our labor, these beautiful gemstones. It's also the first time we've really had just a conversation about it. Just sat down and said like, here's the things we learned from mm -hmm. it. Prior to this, we're just slaving away, typing, typing, typing all the shit. Did you get that? Did you get that kiss? What was that? A grandy, a Kringle, a standy? What are we doing here? Yeah. Those were our conversations <laughs> like a, about it. It's a horrifically accurate impression. Yeah. Kiss there. Okay, yeah. Did you see that love level three? Okay. It was like two robots just inputting all this data. And now it's fun to get to kind of talk about it with the data we have in our head. We hope that you guys enjoyed this journey as well. This is the first step in this journey. I think what we've learned in the Hyperbinge, like you're saying, we have so many episodes. Even as we're just sitting here talking about this, we came up with some during this that I think are going to be very good. I think the Hyperbinge is going to, it's going to teach us so much more. It's going to what? Teach us so much more. Here's the thing. This information comes with the caveat that we have not seen The Bachelorette. 
there are things that are in here that we have said are first that might have happened earlier in The Bachelorette and we don't know it yet. But we will have all that information shortly. Guaranteed. We will have a unified theory of existence of The Bachelor Nation for you (laughs) at some point. But until then, once again, thank you so much for joining us here in the pit. We appreciate everyone who is here, obviously, and can't wait to do the next one, whichever it's going to be. Before we go, what's the dwab at? It has been 6,823 days without a Black Bachelor. Praise be Dark Lord Palmer. Please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us. And then please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us. And then please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us. And then 